Hello, and welcome back to the future of figure skating. Artificial intelligence is impacting many industries, and sports is no exception. Can AI help figure skating judging be more accurate? What other benefits could it have for skaters, coaches, and viewers? My guest today is Craig Bunton, Canadian Olympic para skater and the founder of Sport Logic. Sport Logic is a company at the cutting edge of this technology and has been working with the ISU to explore the feasibility of AI in figure skating. While Craig wasn't able to discuss the details of his work with the ISU, I was very glad to have him help us to understand how the intersection of this technology and skating might play out in the future. According to the May 2023 ISU financial report, the objectives under consideration were, quote, helping figure skating officials to apply the rules correctly and giving them the technical support to evaluate the performed elements in the fairest and most impartial way possible, offering skaters and coaches measurement and analysis tools to evaluate and improve their performance, as well as keep track of the work done and goals achieved, and expanding the multimedia audience, allowing the sport to be enjoyed on different platforms and connecting the key players and their teams with the public and fans by presenting instantaneous statistics slash graphics, end quote. The initial proof of concept phase concluded that these objectives were achievable. However, the conclusions also revealed that, quote, such projects would require a substantial budget, not only for implementation for ISU figure skating events, but also use by the ISU members. The ISU Council is therefore currently exploring whether more cost-effective solutions could be available, end quote. Even if the implementation of AI isn't imminent, it's worth understanding what its impacts might look like down the road. So Craig, welcome and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So first off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey in skating and what you've been doing after your competitive career and how you've got into the work that you're doing now. Well, it's been a it's been a journey. <laughs> so I in a former life, I was a Paris figure skater, grew up in Kelowna, trained in Montreal under Paul Wirtz and then Richard Gauthier had uh, with my first senior partner, Valerie Marcoux, we were three-time Canadian champions, uh, competed at a, a number of world championships, uh, represented Canada at the Olympic Games in 2006. Um, when Val retired in 2007, I partnered up with Megan Duhamel and we had uh, a showing at the world championships as well and, and a couple of national medals. And so, you know, I spent the better part of 20 years of my life as a, as a figure skater, uh, constantly pushing, constantly, you know, focused on on that phase in my life, uh, and I retired at at 29 years old after the the 2010 season, and basically realized I had no plan B, <laughs> I had no other sort of. I'd been out of school for you know 12 years. I had a high school education. I was kind of going, oh wow, what do, what do I do now? And so I uh, always knew that I would want to. I wanted to run my own business. I'll sort of, you know, skip a few details here, but I, I got into the MBA program at McGill, uh, despite not having an undergrad. So kind of threw myself into education and got my degree uh, in 2013 and stepped out of that with a business plan to start what is now Sport Logic. So long story short. Yeah. And so how did you get interested in the ideas of applying technology with sports? So it's, it's a funny, uh, a funny story. I originally did not want to go back into sport. I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to just let's great big world. Let's see what's out there. And I, I spent the last semester in school, basically walking through the center for intelligent machines and poking my head into the engineering department. What are you guys working on? You know, I'm looking to start a company. I'm not quite sure what I want to do. And, 
Um, and this was in 2013 before people were really talking about artificial intelligence, but there was a ton of incredible academic work happening. And I was just speaking with these people going, wow, you know, these technologies are just going to change the world. And I partnered up with my co-founder, uh, Mersan Javan, who is uh, just finishing his PhD at McGill. Uh, he had a technology that took videos and could detect anomalies in them. So it was originally designed for security surveillance, right? It would be like, if uh, you put, let's say, a camera in an airport, the technology would learn that the normal thing to do would be to walk up and down a hallway. But if somebody dropped a bag or did something different, it would just flag it. Something anomalous has happened in this video. So he and I got together and we were thinking, okay, great, let's figure out what we can do with this. And originally, we thought we were going to build a self-driving vehicle company. Uh, we thought we were going to you know, plug this tech into sensors around vehicles and basically help teach cars to drive themselves. Uh, and so that was that was the original vision. And, and we we worked really hard for about a year and a half on that technology and trying to get partners on board and investors. And and at some point we kind of just said, OK, let's let's try to, you know, see if we can tag some video and train an algorithm to do something like what's the best quality video we can get. Uh, and what we used is this this football video where if you're trying to track a person in a video it's much easier to find somebody who's wearing a, a uniform with a number on their jersey running across measured lines on a five to 10 second run than it is to get a vehicle to understand, you know, what, what a pedestrian's doing. And so we tagged a bunch of this video and we looked at it and we kind of went, oh man, those are all the NFL running paths. Like maybe there's a, maybe there's an application for sport here. So we originally kind of fell backwards into sport, uh, not because I wanted to, not because I, you know, had any interest in football, <laughs> but but we uh, we kind of started there. So, in what ways is AI being used in sports currently? And I don't just mean you know figure skating, but just overall, I think it's maybe more advanced in some of the team sport applications, for example. Yeah. So, so we, when we first started the initial thing we, we tried to do, we got a couple of GoPros together and we set up at skate Canada in 20, I think 14 in, in Kelowna. And we, we got a bunch of data and we started tracking, you know, the speed of the skaters and the patterns and started comparing them. Um, we actually went on air at skate Canada to show some of the patterns and we were comparing, uh, I think Yuzuru Hanyu to Patrick Chan at the time, and we were showing, you know, here's, you know, the intricacies of this step sequence, and here's the speed out of the jumps. And we did this great comparison, and, and we thought that's, we've got our thing, and we're going to, you know, onward and upward. Uh, we very quickly realized that we didn't have a fast enough opportunity in figure skating, and so sort of pivoted as quick as we could and looked at all of the AI applications in every other sport. And so, you know, when I when I tell you what's happening in AI and sport, I mean, I can really only speak to the fact that like we sort of were the the initial driver in in hockey um, and now in football and in soccer as well. But so to, to directly answer your question, I, I'll talk talk hockey for a minute, you know, Canadian uh, topic. So sure. when we couldn't start in figure skating, we started in hockey um, and we initially started tracking everything. So think of the location of the players. Uh, the video comes in, we get the XY locations of the players 30 times per second. So you get things like uh, the patterns of the players, the you know distance between them, the speed of the players, how much time they're spending in different zones. And so you get some initial information that the coaches can then use to do things like, you know, assess how well they're playing, you know, in the last game or in the last 10 games, assess what types of tactics work against the team that they're going to play. 
And so we built out that system uh, that now, you know, between our, our team here in Montreal and our technology, we track over 4,000 different events in every game of hockey. So think of, you know, when you see a long program sheet, imagine that, except instead of, you know, a, a dozen elements, there are 4,000 elements. Uh, and, and that's basically what a game of hockey looks like. Um, and so, you know, the, we take all that data and then we build uh, an interface where the teams can log in, they can, you know, tee up their videos, they can do player comparison, they can do scouting and recruitment. So, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, um, and I put quotes around it, really has been a tool to allow coaches to do what they were already doing, but just do it at, you know, a thousand times more efficiently, better and more effectively. That makes a lot of sense. So it's feeding in all of that data that otherwise would be many hours of watching tapes and hoping that your brain catches those patterns, but instead the AI is being able to catch the and identify those patterns. You just said it better than most investors I've ever spoken with. Uh, so <laughs> our, our brains are phenomenal uh, pattern recognition tools. And when you watch one game or, or one long program, you know, an experienced person will understand what they're seeing and, and see patterns that other people might not, right? Uh, a computer at this point can be trained to see those same patterns, but it can watch 10,000 long programs at the same time. And, and that's really where, you know, from a recruitment standpoint now, one NHL team can narrow down 500 potential athletes into maybe five to 10 to 50 that they actually want to then go look for specific skills. And how much in terms of the collecting of that data, the collecting of that video, does that rely on using, you know, specialized equipment or can you just sort of put in game tape and get these kind of results from it? It depends on the level of accuracy you want, right? So if you need absolutely perfect information, computers aren't quite there yet, depending on, you know, what it is you're doing. But if you're looking for something that is highly accurate, um, very few errors and is scaling, you usually have some kind of a semi-automated system where you have people cleaning the data, people quality controlling the data, and sort of the, the people working in tandem with the technology. Mm -hmm. You're willing to accept fewer data points, certain levels of error, but you're scaling and capturing, you know, you know in soccer, 18,000 games a year. Well, you have a fully automated system that has different accuracy levels. And so we build our products based on what our customers need, uh, but ultimately it comes down to what level of accuracy. So, you know, in, in the case of figure skating, you need, and let's say judging as an example, right? Let's say you're using, building a tool that can assess or, or help the judges maybe measure rotations or speed or something. Yeah. You either need a semi-automated system or you need a lot of cameras. And I suspect a lot of cameras would probably be the, the approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when you were describing some of your early work and thinking about what you're able to show, that sounds a lot like when you see Japanese broadcasts of figure skating. And I think that they there was just a little tiny bit of that. You could see it, I think, at the most recent world championships where they were measuring the height and distance. I think of, it was like one jump in each program. You could see, I think they were looking at everyone's axles and you can see that. And then you can also see those sort of speed maps of the program, which it's interesting from, I think, from an athlete and an informed person's perspective, you could go in and learn a lot from that. I always wonder about the application of this into broadcasting. I think with it seems like 
there's not necessarily a having figured out how to talk about that information in a way that adds to the narrative because it's it's not necessarily going to match up with what the judges are seeing or saying either because their perceptions and what the audience are getting. So it, it was an interesting thing to see it being used, you know, in a broadcasting context, but not in the judging context in Japan. But is that is what I'm sort of describing and picturing similar to, you know, to what you're talking about? Well, that's been our experience. So, so we have now, you know, 10 years experience working in hockey. And the first year or two, these were the questions that people were asking in hockey, right? And these were the, these were the sort of observations that people were making. And it's going to be fascinating to watch the technology make its way into figure skating. And, and it will. I mean, it's just, it's undeniably, it makes everything better. So it will. But there's sort of a couple ways to think about it. If you're going to build brand new technology, it's expensive. You've got to go out, you've got to find investors who are willing to put, you know, put the capital in, you're going to build the team and it's it's a lot of work. And there needs to be some kind of a payback on that investment, meaning somebody needs to pay for the products that come out on the end of it. And now when you think of sport in general, money tends to come through either broadcasters or from fans or from, you know, uh, people who are engaged with the sport and, and watching. So whatever product you're going to build with any new technology, there needs to be an application that goes to the broader fan base, right? But you're exactly right that I hate, and again, air quotes, analytics. I, th I think the idea of trying to sell analytics to fans is so counter to why, why I love sport, right? What I love about sport is just the stories, right? You, the perseverance you see. And when I watch great commentary, I hear stories and I hear information that I might not have seen. Right. And I think that's really where what gets me. And so what needs to happen is you can't just throw a bunch of data at fans and go, look, here's a chart or here's a here's a data point. And that's really how hockey started. But what happened was there were a few specialists who began working with us. And I don't mean like, you know, building product. I mean, like on air, we're delivering reports. We've got a channel directly to them. We give them a chart of data and we talk to them and they talk to us and they say, you know, I noticed this player is doing X, Y, or Z. Well, look, yes, that's because loose puck recoveries in this area are off the charts because of X, Y. And suddenly the data comes to life. There's some color there and there's some humanity to it. And that will come. It will come. The first applications you're going to see, unfortunately, you're going to see just here's a data point. Here's a chart. Uh, but it will come. There will be people who begin to be able to really tell that color commentary. It won't be nearly as detailed as the judges need, but it's going to be really interesting. And I can't wait to see those stories come out. In fact, I've seen a lot of the data, so I know the stories are there. <laughs> so, so, so yes, there will be great content. I don't know if it's there yet. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. I think I remember watching the Women's World Cup and hearing about how the U.S. team was, I'm going to see if I can say this accurately, but it was something along the lines of, you know, of the goals that they were expected to have, they were, you know, they were having a lot of goal opportunities, but not using those opportunities and not scoring. And so it was saying, well, how are you judging? What is a, you know, what was a goal opportunity? How is this information coming from it? You know, the answer was that's AI. And the conversation then from the analysts about, okay, so what does that mean, turned into a really interesting conversation about, uh, you know, the difference between creating opportunities versus capitalizing on them. And so, you know, the data point in and of itself, fine, 
but it did actually, like you were saying, you know, then catalyze a, you know, an interesting story that in conversation that came out of it that the, you know, the athlete who was on the broadcast could talk about their experience with it and it sort of grow from there. That's it. And, and, and how many times did you see an expected goal stat put on the screen, right? Like never. And if you did, it probably only happened once. <laughs> so, but that's the thing. So it's like, you know, you could talk about how the expected goal model is built, where, you know, you looked at 5,000 different shot opportunities, and they usually came from, let's say, across from the blue line to this area and a shot. And so with that many shots that were taken like that, you should have scored three times, right? And if you only scored twice, there's probably an issue with either the shot or the goalie, right? Maybe the goalie is really strong or the, the accuracy of the shot is a little off. And then, then, then the focus of the story really becomes that. But it was the stat that drove you to the story. And that's where that's really what, what I believe is going to be super interesting in figure skating because there's just so inform so much information that the skaters and the coaches know. And some of the, the conversations and debates we get into in skating are some of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. And I think the technology is going to open up some of that discussion to a lot of the fans who, you know, they see the beauty in the sport, but they might not see every little detail of what makes it beautiful, right? Goes exactly to that point that I think a lot of people are still complaining about the the IJS and the use of it as this idea that somehow there are too many numbers, there are too many statistics that it people don't re see the number on the screen and don't understand how that score was gotten to. And all, you know, all of that I think is a barrier for fans trying to understand, trying to understand the sport. And I think a lot of it does go into that how are you distilling that information for people to, you know, to understand it? And how do you connect what somebody saw with their own eyes to what the judges saw to what the, the results, you know, is and making all of those connections? Look, so I've looked at a lot very deeply at, at some of the, the data. And what I find, if we get to where I believe we can get to, one of the things that I think is going to be the most interesting is that in figure skating, it's not just technique. It's not just, you know, your, the skills that you execute. You also have this creativity and this artistry and, and within creativity and artistry, there are actually sub components of that. Right. And without getting into the judging system, the, you can think of like a really well executed crossover, right. Think of, uh, I don't know, Gordie Evan Grinkoff, right. When they went around the corner, they came out of that corner. That was undeniably the best crossover you had ever seen. <laughs> right. Um, and so there's, there's the quality of these long edges and this acceleration coming out of the corner. Whereas you look at, let's say uh, a Jamie and Dave and this intricacy of maybe the steps were shorter, maybe they were more varied. So those are sort of technical components of artistry. And so the day that we, we just start going, oh, I like this style of skating better. I like this style. We're actually going to have information to then say what you like, right? I like that when the lengths of the crossovers are this long, or I like when there's not as much speed and coverage, but there's a lot of variance, right? And I think that kind of hearing two people start to debate the artistry at that level is going to be really fascinating. And I've had those debates, so I know they're great, <laughs> but I, I can't wait to see uh, that kind of discussion happening. Especially when, you know, some of these things that go into the grades of execution or that are around you know, height and speed and variety and all of these are, you know, things that we have debates about. Well, but what does that, what actually does that mean, A, and B, is everyone assessing it the same? 
these are things that could have concrete answers to them. So I think they'll get concrete answers. I'm not convinced we'll ever get to the heart of like what's better because I don't think there is a better, right? Like like tomorrow, if G&G got on the ice with Dave and Jamie, who would be better? I, mean, I don't know, I, I, <laughs> right? I mean, these these are, are two fundamentally different skating styles and, and you're, you're going to have your preference. But at the very least, we're not going to be debating blindly. We're not going to say this was better. It's going to say, well, you know, here, these aspects of this was better, how much better than average. And these aspects of these skaters were better and how much better than average. Right. Um, and so the very least from a judging standpoint, there's going to be a clear, I like this better. <laughs> so. No, totally. Totally. Um, so I'm curious if you've seen in other sports, any of the applications being used around making, you know, not judging necessarily, but making, you know, the calls that a referee is making or that kind of thing. I think the analysis that you could do from a side of a player and a coach after the fact and in learning about it and then presenting to the audience, but in terms of actually sort of impacting field of play decision making. Yeah, it's a great question. I know there are, but I don't have, I don't know too much about about how those applications have started so we we kind of had a choice as a as a technology we could have either plugged into let's say a league or a let's i don't know a referees union or something like that and work with them to build referee products or we could work with the teams to help them you know make the best decisions possible and for us we focused on the latter uh, so I've seen technologies around VAR. I know that the NBA is doing um, certain things as well. I just don't know. <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. You know, one of the questions that I had when I talked, talked to Jaren Prinz, experienced judge from the Netherlands, asked him if he thought that there would be, you know, applications for technology. And one of the thoughts that he had had was that, yes, you could have, you know, for the technical panel, for example, to have, you know, multiple camera views, then you would have a much better chance of being able to see, was that edge really that edge, you know, was that jump really under rotated, those things that, um, you know, very trained people, but they are at some point, a judgment call. Um, and you're saying, you know, more information would be great, but the downside of that would be the time that it would take. And so is one of the advantages that you could see reducing that time that it takes for a person to pull up and look at multiple views? Oh, yeah. So first, I recently learned how difficult it is. Let, let's just use jump rotations as an example, right? Measuring the angle or the degrees of rotation in a jump, you could take the best people in the world and look at the jump from 8, 10, 12 plus angles. And even with everybody looking at it frame by frame, it would be very difficult to get consistent answers. And, and even the ones, so I went through it myself and, and looked at, you know, hundreds of jumps and went through looking and saying, this was clean, or I think this is under rotated and, uh, and then put it away thinking, oh, I'm, I've done this my whole life. I know I had eight different angles at this and, and had some people question, oh, what about this jump or that one? Could it have been this and this? And when I went back, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. Their opinion's right. And, you know, and so you could take the top people in the world and consistency is, is a challenge. And it's just the fact that it's very difficult to do. And the other thing you're right is that if you tried to do it perfectly and took minutes for every jump, I mean, I, as a fan in the stands, forget it. I'm not going to sit and, and wait for the judges to make the decisions for, for that long. And so having some tools to enable the, the technical panel, let's say there's a, a measured 
number of rotations and that's delivered on screen. And then they have the ability to do the, the video replay from multiple camera angles if they want to also, right? That's the kind of thing where, you know, if it was obviously clean or if they had any questions, they could at least have sort of an objective measurement paired with the ability to zoom in and zoom out and override that measurement. And I, and I think those are the kind of tools that, number one, they're going to build confidence with the fans. Uh, number two, they're going to save time in judging itself. So, and yeah, number three, it'll be, we'll see consistency ac across competitions. That is one of the things that is, you know, so complicated. And I was thinking about this, I was like, I said, I was at a competition this past weekend and it was one of my favorite things about going to small competitions at the beginning of the year was that I got to stand right at the boards. I ended up realizing that I was essentially standing in the Lutz corner. And so I was getting a really interesting close up view of a lot of landings and seeing <laughs> the mark on the ice and thinking, hmm, I wonder if that's going to get counted as, you know, rotated or not. And so because I was looking at it from an angle very different than what the judges were, I'm going to say my assessment, knowing that I am not a technical specialist and I could very well have just been, you know, flat out wrong if someone standing next to me could have said something different. But it was interesting to see, you know, where my guesses at, um, ended up aligning with the protocols or not. And so it was just such a reminder of how the perception changes, but also for these athletes at the beginning of the season, they're getting, they're really taking the scores they're getting as feedback on what they need to work on. You know, the difference between an athlete who got three under rotations or three quarters versus someone who, you know, got a pretty clean protocol, they might therefore go, go on and work on different things on a daily basis. So that the idea of there being some method that was being used both by the judges and that could be used in within the rink training by the athlete would be, you know, an amazing way of trying to create consistency of, of feedback. For sure. I remember choreographing programs uh, early on. And when you, when you first put it in first jump of the program, we said this one, we're really strong in this jump. So we are going to go faster than we've ever gone. And we're just going to floor people with the speed we have into this. Right. And as you're choreographing the program, you, the first few that you do, they fly and they fly. And maybe for the first month, even you're like, Oh, we're really going to, and then you put in that new lift and then you, you know, you put in the extra rotation on the twist and you put in the new difficult entry on the lift later on. And suddenly when you start a program, nothing really changed, but for some reason you're skating a little slower into that first jump. And you just don't notice because your, your mind is elsewhere, right? So, you know, you're exactly right. If you had, you know, a little flag every day, it kind of went, oh, you know, you're a little slower. <laughs> Remember to keep the speed up on this thing, right? Unless there's some reason that you decided to, to intentionally skate a little slower into that jump. But sometimes that's just the way that it goes as you're, as you're, you're training and getting some feedback. I mean, it would have changed my life. We used to write down every day in, in our journals, right? What elements we did, were they fast, were they slow? How do we do on them? And that was how we assessed, you know, our consistency over time. But we'll see, we'll get there. Yeah. So what do you think are some of the next steps that you'd like to see with this development in terms of applications? We mentioned jump rotations and speed. What, you know, what other things are you looking at? You know, there, there tends to be this hurdle, at least in, in hockey, we saw it. And uh, once you have the equipment installed, so it's like data collection or the products that you can build on top of AI starts with, you've got some an initial problem and then you've got to get, let's say the cameras in and you've got to get, I don't know, blade tracking technology or something like that. And once you've got that 
you've got your first product and then the next 10 are actually relatively simple you know, relative to the work you put in to get that first one. And so I think in figure skating, we're still kind of at the first one. We're still sort of looking at what is the largest problem we need to solve immediately. And then once the camera's in, what are all the amazing things that we can, we can do? So I'll separate the, the answer by, by those two, frame it that way. So uh, the first one, I think we, we already kind of put our finger on it, which is jump rotations, right? It's a really difficult thing to do consistently. Uh, it's one that absolutely impacts the results of competition. And when there are issues, and the ISU has consistently worked to be as good as they can at this, they might take a minute, two minutes, three minutes to come up with the right answer, right? And that's just a terrible fan experience. And so that probably is the first one. The first solutions I can see are probably in the area of measuring jump rotations. And hilariously enough, as much as it sounds very simple to think, oh, they did three rotations, that was a triple, or four rotations, that was a quad. The idea of measuring the number of rotations and determining how many rotations each of those jumps should have is actually really difficult to quantify. So every jump, I mean, first you start with, if you have a computer, imagine a naive computer that has never seen figure skating. It just sees pixels on a screen, hundreds of millions of pixels on a screen. And it has to learn, number one, where the blade is at any given time. And you need to detect where that blade is. And not only that, just from a timing standpoint, you need to have the exact moment that that blade leaves the ice. Because if you are even one frame too late or too early, you might gain or lose 15, 20, 30 degrees of rotation, right? Because that's how fast a skater begins to rotate while they're on the ice and before they take off. So those are the initial two technologies, just simply tracking the XY coordinates of the blade and tracking the moment the blade leaves the ice. Once you have those, then you can measure jump rotations. But that kind of leads into the next big hurdle is how many rotations should a jump have, right? And how do you get that? Do you just sort of arbitrarily pick a number out of the sky? Or do you go and collect thousands of jumps and marry it with what, you know, maybe all the judges have said in the past, but are you introducing bias at that point? Are you? So, so, so you've got to do a thorough, thorough job at collecting information, assessing that information with really, really, you know, experienced people to then determine how many rotations each type of jump should have. And so that work all kind of needs to happen before we're even at the starting gate. But there's no, uh, there's no barrier to us actually solving that. I mean, our technology today, as is, can do that. So the good news is, is, is there's no theoretical challenges as to us solving that problem. And I see that as probably being the first one. So that's the answer to kind of the first part. All the things that can be done, imagine being able to measure the speed and distance of every step sequence. Right. So just or the total ice coverage of a program, the number of rotations in each position in a spin. Um, so rather than have to sit there and count and give that the, you know, the it is this great, it was this level, uh, being able to automatically detect those types of things. So just having consistency measuring that across the board uh, is going to make the sport uh, or at least it, increase the trust that the fans have in judging the sport. Yeah. And just, you know, on that sort of question, are you seeing that this is something that judges would welcome having that kind of information? Is there resistance? Look, I think everybody and myself included 
when you see AI, the capabilities of AI kind of for the first time, or when you think about, you know, what it might be able to do, there's kind of this gut-wrenching feeling of, oh man, what is this going to take my job? Is this going to now make my entire industry obsolete? And AI has that ability. And I think when people kind of first hear we're going to automate X, Y, or Z, the initial reaction is, oh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and, and rightfully so. I think every human should have that, <laughs> that response. But I, I think when people see it and they have a conversation about the types of tools that can be built, and we think about this thing as a tool to help judges uh, get more information quicker um, and not something as, you know, people are trying to automate anything. Frankly, we're, I, I don't think the goal of these tools should be to automate anything. I think human beings need to be judging human beings, but the tools to enable them to do it more consistently and faster is a pretty exciting idea. And, and I think, and I've heard generally, <laughs> very broadly, that's kind of the response that I've heard. And I think it's just critical as, as these tools get built to keep those lines of communication open, uh, to take the questions and concerns really seriously and make sure that uh, they're being heard and communicated broadly to everybody. Uh, and more importantly, as the tools are being built, to include everybody in designing them, in thinking through the assumptions, right? Bringing people in from multiple countries, from multiple backgrounds and perspectives. And I think if those things can all kind of happen, I think we're going to end up with some great tools in the sport. Yeah, that's, that is an exciting perspective. And the idea that judges could then focus on the parts of, like you said, the parts of the sport that are intentionally subjective, but being able to base it on more objective information, but then they're, what they're being asked to do is the part that only they can do. And, and look, I, part of the reason I love this sport so much is because I don't, like I said, end to end, I don't think judging can be automated, period. <laughs> I, think, I think this idea that you and I can sit and debate what was more beautiful in two flawless performances, that's what gives me goosebumps. That's why I love this sport. So the more that we can move towards that, the better off we all are. Yeah. Absolutely. You'd mentioned in terms of blade tracking and everything with this is with cameras, I'm assuming, rather than looking at anything that is mounted on a skate. Oh my God. I wish I could turn my computer so you could see. I actually have like electronic components covering my desk on the side here. So we are 100% computer vision. Uh, we, we only do uh, passive tracking. So we don't install anything on boots or in the stadium or anything like that. Um, but the last year I've been kind of tinkering with the idea of, of a smart skate. And, and I've had some, you know, a couple of young startups who were building these smart skates in hockey, send over some pieces. And I actually got on the ice with some blinking equipment on my skates. And as for logic, I mean, we're, we're not there. We're not building equipment. This really is cameras at this point. But fast forward five, 10 years, and I'm, I'm convinced there will be some combination of smart skates that kids are using while training and cameras for judging at competitions. That's really interesting. And I think it also overlaps with some of the work that's being done from a biomechanics perspective in terms of looking at potential for injury prevention, understanding like what are the forces that are impacting a, a skater. I had an interesting conversation with a, a biomechanics professor who's looked at that and the difficulty of actually measuring and answering those basic questions about like, well, what is the force that happens when you land a jump? You can do it in laboratory 
conditions, but it's very hard to measure when someone's actually out there on the ice doing the program and what would that take? And uh, it was an interesting thing because it does seem like so many of the questions that come into how do you prevent overuse injuries? How do you know if too many repetitions are? And all of those things still struggling to answer some of the most basic questions of information that would go into being able to assess that. I'm so glad you brought up this point. One of the most interesting conversations I had uh, was last year. It was about jump rotation, so kind of tying it in. And it was just this idea of like, how do we measure jump rotations, right? Is it the total number of rotations in the air? Is it the total number of rotations on the landing? And if so, relative to what, right? Is it the the takeoff point? And then there was this sort of frustrating, like, well, let's just measure the total rotations in the air. That's it. And there was this sort of feeling in the room that we were talking either rotations on the landing or missing rotations on the takeoff, some pre-rotation. And there was this feeling in the air that oh, the purest way of, of skating is not having pre-rotation or too much pre-rotation, whatever you know that means. And we were sort of talking about it. At the end of the day, we kind of went, look, the interesting thing about this conversation is that we don't actually know what is right. Because what if we go out and collect 10,000 jumps and we learn that doing more rotation on the takeoff actually prevents injury? Would we still consider it right? Or would we consider it wrong? Would we, you know, like, and so the idea was like, let's just think through collecting information and, and putting our biases or our assumptions on the side and just looking at the pure data and, and introducing questions like that, which are, what is the safest way to learn or the are there techniques that could be more widely adopted that would be more beneficial or, or reduce injuries overall, long-term overuse injuries, right? And those are the questions you layer on once you have the data. But the idea that maybe there's something in a technique that we might consider wrong today that might actually be beneficial for the skaters. I don't know if it, if it is or not, but the point is you don't know until you have the data and then you ask the question to the data. I think we're getting very close to being able to measure it. And we'll see as those questions come up. Yeah, it goes back to that question also of who the end user is and do they have the resources to invest in what it takes to build this data that, you know, that was an obstacle, you know, from an academic perspective, there wasn't money to fund research into figure skating specific things. I think, you know, overall, we see that two things are occurring to me. One about the rotations. I think people don't understand that one triple jump is not the same as another triple jump. You think triple jump and that's three revolutions. No, that's not, they're all different. And so I think even that fact is mind blowing to a lot of people and fans do not realize that when they start out. And so you see people trying to look at still images and assess what is happening with their guessing at a blade on the ice. And you're thinking, no, first off, you have to understand that you can't assume that a Lutz is going to work the same as a toe loop. They don't. And so Totally different. Yep. And on, you might get up to like three quarters of a rotation difference between those two jumps, right? <laughs> which, and they're both just triples. <laughs> well, and that's the whole idea that j- now that we have a quad axle, the quintuple toe loop won't be oh, far behind so the rotation close. differences. Not that much. So it's very, it, these are very interesting questions, but I never thought I'd see a quint. I just, I mean, from, yeah. from the time as a 10 year old kid, I just assumed in my lifetime, I will never see a quint. Now we might, we might see one. I think it, well, and this goes to the same question. I think if Ilya can manage to not break himself in the pursuit of it, I'm sure that he's capable of it. Watching him in person and seeing just the sheer height that he gets effortlessly is amazing. The other thing that that makes me think about though, in particular in relation to pair skating was that when I 
talked, I had, so I had Megan Hamill on the podcast. And one of the things that she was saying was about, you know, learning to do quadruple throws and the technique that she and Eric were using and how they were able to do it safely. I then talked to Italian pair skater Matteo Guarise, who is trying to learn to do a quad throw. And he said that he was actually looking at Megan and Eric's technique. And part of the reason he thought he and his new partner were going to be able to do it was because she rotates very quickly and that the idea of doing it safely would require having a smaller jump and rotating quickly as opposed to trying to do the Chinese technique of having a giant throw. And so just thinking about that, these are people who are studying what you know other athletes are doing and trying to learn different techniques. But if you could actually look at well, what is the correlation between different techniques and, you know, amounts of repetition and injury and actually try to analyze that in a more comprehensive way, I think would be so fascinating. You'd learn so much. And then there's the question of, but what is good? Do we judge the bigger throw better? Well, don't, don't underestimate how far we've come too, right? Like, I mean, the one thing that I never expected to see was like these young 13, 14 year old girls landing quads the way they are. I mean, I just, I never that one, I was kind of like, it kind of caught me off guard. Like, wow, uh, what ha- <laughs> what leap did we make when uh, <laughs> from the time that I retired to the time I'm watching this program? When you actually look at these, especially if you watch them in slow motion, you just, it's, it's fascinating to see the counter rotation, to see the actual lift of the knee while never sort of going too far from that center of rotation. Just the biomechanics, you look at that and go, yeah, that's a leap from where we were when I was training. And so- you said it. It was like, don't underestimate the coaches do see these patterns and they do learn. We certainly will get much better more broadly and more people will have access to the latest thinking around technique as it gets developed once the data is being collected. But I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed what these skaters are doing right now. It's like to the point where I don't even understand it. You know, It's like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Glad I retired when I did. It's what you start believing is possible. And then you train with that in mind and it changes. You start as a kid thinking, well, of course, I'm going to need to be able to do quads by the time I get, you know, so then you train differently. And it's been interesting thinking about that, like you said, from the perspective of looking at the difference between men's and women's skating, that there may be some different techniques needed, but a lot of it may just be if you're going in with the assumption that that's what you need to do and you're training toward it there just wasn't that happening as much before. And it's hard to, you know, unless your training environments are the same and what you're being asked to do is the same, it's hard to judge whether or not people are capable of the same things either. It's crazy to think the, uh, how powerful that psychological barrier is. Stupid story, but I, I I took my seven-year-old and my four-year-old on this little rock climbing thing this weekend. Seven-year-old picks up the the rope and grabs the little knobs and, and climbs his way up. And it probably took him a couple of years to kind of like figure out how to do that. And, you know, we went climbing together and my four-year-old saw him do it. And the minute he saw him, grabbed the rope, put the feet in and pop right to the top. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's just that, that psychology of suddenly reframing what's possible. And, uh, you know, I remember Kurt and Elvis, right? It was like, you were watching. It was just like the quad. <laughs> it was just like the setup, the intensity going into it. But, you know, as, as a kid growing up now, you just, you see quads all over the place, right? And, and so suddenly it, it sort of becomes normal. And in your mind, you're doing a double or a triple to get to the quad. And, and that's just going to be the next step you take in your progression. And it's just that psychological barrier. I just, I'm always amazed at, at humans <laughs> with that. Yeah, that's a very cool thing. 
want to ask you if there's anything else that we haven't touched on that you feel like is important come at this from a couple different angles. And so as we're wrapping up, what else have we not gotten to that you feel like is important? I don't even know where I'm going to go with this, but maybe just I left sport in 2010. We're now 2023. Has it been 13 years? And I am just, I'm more in love with the sport today than I've ever been. And it's part of it, of course, is just this beauty and this artistry of watching people perform. But part of it is just this skating community. And, and, you know, it was the first thing we said before we started recording, talking about how great this skating community is. And I just, you know, for everybody who's in the sport, everybody's growing up, every parent who's thinking about putting their kid in it, it is such an amazing community. Truly, the people who have shaped me, the beauty and the creativity that I brought into every other aspect of my life because of what I learned in sport, I'm just so grateful for it. So I don't know if that, you know, it's not much a question, but maybe a comment. And for all your listeners out there, I think you get it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's really good to hear, though, because I think, you know, I certainly spend a lot of time talking to people about what some of the darker sides of the sport are and the ways that, you know, people come through competitive sports with some pretty hard experiences sometimes. But it's good to remember that there are a lot of positives out there, too. And that's what we're trying to move toward and cultivate. Yeah, look, sport emulates life. And like life, sport is often not easy for a million and one reasons. But you know, you always try to help prop up the community that raised you. And and I'm just so uh, thankful for the people that that were around as I was growing up in this sport. Um, And uh, yeah, I hope I hope my kids can experience even half of what I got to experience in it. Wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this. Likewise, appreciate it. Thank you again to Craig Bunton for sharing his work with us. You can learn more about SportLogic at sportlogic.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-L-O-G-I-Q.com. And you can follow Craig on Twitter at Craig Bunton. As always, the episode transcript and more resources are linked in the show notes. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast.gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. If you appreciate this podcast, you can also support my work with a tip jar at futureoffigureskating.pinecast.co. Remember to subscribe and review the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.